But oh, also, should we title this "Renowned Pedophiles"? <laughs> Sorry, Pierinos. <laughs> Pedorinos, take note. <laughs> Hey guys, welcome back to Couple Goals. Hello everyone. How are you, Maggie? I have a headache. How are you? I'm okay. That's I'm good. congested, but I'm congested every day of my life. You so are congested every day. Just every day. It's how I live. I have a headache almost every day, so I get it. Yeah. I get it. Did you have a news story this week? No, I was going to ask you, because I wanted to talk about something, so I was going to ask you if there was... There were any properties or movies or books or whatever that you would like to see rebooted or reinvented or adapted for current audiences. Yes. Well, what do you got? The Langoliers. The <laughs> I'm serious. Explain like, what the Langoliers are for all right. anyone who isn't a hardcore Stephen King fan. So the Langoliers is a Stephen King story and back in the 90s they did it for TV it was like a mini series and I assume after the excess of uh, the, the excess the success <laughs> of it the stand like those kind oh, of Oh yeah the stand was like, a yeah. big one too. Yeah, the stand was a huge one. But it was I really like the story but the made for TV was not great because CGI wasn't what it is now. That wasn't the only problem with that <laughs> series. You have you had me watch it. I love it. And I would totally watch a remake of that. Yeah, I'll tell you what I remember of it. They are in. They wake up on an airplane. They're on an airplane. And then they they like wake up and there's only like seven people left or something on yeah, the flight. Right. Right. And only the people who were asleep. When they went through this time rip. Yeah. That's all that survives. And they're basically trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Yeah. Where is everyone? Yeah. And then it turns out there's these little. Well, uh, they look like. Little. They're, they're not little. No, they're I mean, they're eating. Well, I'm telling you what I remember. They're eating power like those power, big giant power like structures. Yeah. That run all of our wires. Here's what I remember from the one time I watched it. It looked like a bunch of shiny metallic chain chomps from Mario. Yeah. <laughs> Is that right? Yeah. And they were eating time or something. Yeah, they're eating it. And then it, like they're just eating the world as it comes up. And then it you go away. You like will disappear. So they had to go through a time rip again. Yeah. OK. Yeah. That. I don't know if that can be done well. Fuck you. <laughs> I would head a Langoliers remake. <laughs> Hollywood, call me. So what no I would like me. to see, what I, what I think is due for some type of overhaul, and they, they've done some some remakes and stuff, but I, I'd like to see a cinematic or a video game overhaul would be the Masters of the Universe line. Which Wait, started you, as a toy mean? line. Yeah. Toy line became a cartoon became a terrible, terrible, terrible movie and fell off the face of the earth. And then, like I said, there, there's been some. It hasn't fallen off the face of the earth because we went as She-Ra and Skeletor like. No, but I mean, it was, you know, it was hugely popular and it just 
plummeted. Well, yeah, it's because the kids that it was popular with, they grew up. I think, well, there was a, they talk about it on that, that TV show, Toys Time Forgot. There was well, a bunch of different reasons. That's not the name of it. Toys Time Forgot is a store. I always forget that. Toys that made us. <laughs> this is what happens when you get old. You just, <laughs> you either. Just like, he's like, I have to go to Revco and pick up my prescription. <laughs> like, Jesus. Remco is what, well, what he used to call it. Okay, but Revco is what CVS is now. Yeah. But that's what I was referring oh, I to. I thought you were referring to no. Steve's dad who would call Revco Remco no. and he would get gas at PB and things like that. <laughs> yeah. It just sounds like he might be Love you, Bob. Bob's the best. Bob doesn't listen. But yeah, I'd like to see Masters of the Universe come back. They they did redo the cartoon at one point and it was fine, but I'd like to see like a movie or even better, a video game. I think it's it's a perfect world for a video game, like a World of Warcraft style video game, basically. Oh, I'd yeah. play that. <laughs> or just that. an RPG, an action RPG in general. I play that. Like, do you get that, like Pegasus? But they like, could. If you I think they should do. That would be your mount. I think they should do a full blown movie like they did with Transformers, but not have Michael Bay have anything to do with it. Maybe get like some really talented people who actually. I liked the first the Transformer. I liked. It was one. enjoyable. It, it wasn't yeah. great. It was. I think that was more just the joy of seeing the the Transformers on the big screen. And, yeah, maybe. And it had good CG and, and good effects, but it wasn't exactly a, a great movie. Too much Shia LaBeouf, right? In my opinion, right? But yeah, that 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 was that was just that's one thing I'd like to see rebooted. Well, I have a news story that okay. has nothing to do with any of this, but I saw it and I was like, "This is outrageous!" And I was gonna just send it to you. Yeah. And then I was like, "Let's talk about it." All right. Misogynistic quote above HISD middle school lockers go viral. So this is in Houston. That's what H is. A quote painted above lockers at Houston ISD Elementary and Middle School is drawing major criticism. The quote reads, the more you act like a lady, the more he'll act like a gentleman. Hmm. It's painted above a set of lockers at Gregory Lincoln Education Center in the Fourth Ward. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of this except for this part. Disturbingly enough, the quote comes from Sydney. Biddle Barrows, a businesswoman who was the owner of an escort agency in New York City. <laughs> Barrows oh, became irony. Known, she became known as the Mayflower Madam. And in October of 1984, her escort service was disbanded and she pled guilty to promoting prostitution. So there's more to the story, but Houston public schools or whatever, they were like, yeah. That exists. We're so sorry. We'll take it down. So I don't understand how something like that happens. How you end up with like a madam's quote on your on your public school walls. How does right. that happen? Nobody how, did any research. How does that happen? And like it's already fucking like yikes. Like with the, the quote itself, it's like yeah. it's very like misogyny is a strong term. Though. Hey, I'm just going by what the right. Thing but said. I but, mean, do you agree or no? I feel yeah, like I sexist a, is is fits. It's a yeah, sexist. Yeah, it's quote. more sex. Misogyny always think of you know like a woman hater. That's right. not. And so it's a misogynistic quote from a woman. I mean, I, I guess you can be a misogynistic woman. What? Which is weird because her whole business was empowerment. Right. Like literally prostitution. Right. Is is just taking advantage Se of men. Sex working. <laughs> it you was 1984. Be, you gotta be super sensitive, guys. <sighs> gotta be so sensitive to everybody out there. But that story, I saw the quote. I was like, "How does that even happen? How does a quote from a a famous madam get up on a public school wall? Like, what? What since happened? Since 19, 
84. Yeah, or sometime in the 80s, yeah. How does that happen? Wow. So, I just thought it was weird. They're painting I will it. say that was most likely a dude who heard that and said, we need to put that up there. You know yeah, what I mean? It was probably, <laughs> that it was was probably a, dude. a dude who was like, yeah, if these chicks weren't acting like such sluts, maybe they would have been blah, blah, blah. Right. Because that's how men are. It's always the woman's fault. All right. Men. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to discuss the James O'Barr comic book, The Crow, and the movie. Directed. I didn't know. I, I've never heard of James O'Barr before. Is it like O apostrophe Barr? Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I had no idea. He was the artist and writer, creator of The Crow. So I was going to talk so about that. So he wrote it and drew it? Yes. Oh. Is that common? I always uh, thought there was like an artist and like a writer. I didn't think it was. Sometimes Frank Miller writes and draws. Um, Todd McFarlane, terrible writer. There, there are cases where artists, well, you have writers who can draw, and then you have artists who try to write. <laughs> it's yeah. usually how it works out. That's why I was like, really? Because yeah. normally... Usually they're not good at both, but sometimes I'm, they are, like Frank Miller. I really I'm like his I'm a terrible writer, but I can draw. Would that um, keep me from writing a comic book? No, no. I would do it anyway. So yeah, it, it's, it's probably not that common, but I, I can think of a few who've done that. And... That happens a lot with indie comics, which is where this started, when you're just trying to create your own sense. thing. That makes You're like just like... Yonan Vasquez. Yeah. You know, Johnny the Homicidal Maniac and stuff. Invader Zim. So, uh, Sam Keith with the Max. When you read... Like, with Image Comics, a lot of those guys wrote their own stuff, and it right. really shows. <laughs> so their you, art is phenomenal. You can tell. You can tell. <laughs> they were just so full of themselves. They're like, well, I'm going to write... I'm going to write my own comic, and... Like maybe just stick to the art side of things. <laughs> maybe Not outsource so the writing. <laughs> Rob Liefeld. He can't even draw feet. <laughs> can't even draw feet. All right. I'll just read a, a little synopsis here. This is from Wikipedia. For those of you who don't know, The Crow is a comic book series that was created by James O'Barr. I did that, not know. That revolved around the titular character of the same name. It was actually original, originally created as a means of dealing with the death of his girlfriend at the hands of a drunk driver. Oh. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting and kind of sad. Yeah. That's something I knew from the collected edit. Like, I, I didn't read it when it came. It came out in 1989 is when the first issue came out. Uh, I didn't hear of it until there was production on a movie. And then I was like, well, I got to check this out. And they had a collected edition by then. Yeah. And there was a lot of extra material in there. And you, you found out. That Backstory that's... and stuff. Yeah. So this is a quote from James O'Barr. When I was 16, I met this girl and she was the best thing that ever happened to me. Up until that point, my life kind of felt like an endurance test. And I felt like I finally got to the end of it. Good things were finally going to start happening to me. He was 16. He was 16 when he met her. He was 16. And he was like, my life has been an endurance test. You're 16 years old. I understand that. Dude, people, I get that. People who act like they have it so hard and they're not even like you're not even an adult yet. Like life doesn't even suck as bad as it's going to suck yet. That's not true. The worst years of my High life school, were definitely yeah. spent as a kid. Oh, yeah. For you. Yeah. And the, he might have had a similar life. So true. those are I mean, that's that's when I was all about killing myself. I'm just saying 16 is just a little bit young to. But yeah, you're also 
You You're also hormones. more dramatic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everything so seems worse. Every everything seems a lot worse. So I was with this girl for three years, and we were engaged to get married when we graduated, and she was my whole world. A couple of weeks before her 18th birthday, she was killed by a drunk driver. Jesus Christ, that's terrible. That was just completely devastating to me. I had no idea what to do with my life then. I was filled with such anger and frustration that I thought I was going to just destroy myself. So I carried this around for a couple of years, and I just felt like I was full of this poison. Uh, the only way he felt he could work through the tragedy out of his system was to draw and write about it, trying to work out all the anger and frustration and bitterness towards God. So, yeah, that's that's the inspiration for the story. Huh. That's sad. It's a sad story. Yeah, it's all it's all very sad. It is. That's very sad. So anyway, uh, the crow, the first appearances are a big deal in comic books. Right. That's those are the ones that are typically worth the most money. Spider-Man's first appearance, Superman, Batman, whoever, Deadpool. Those are more important and more valuable than, say, a number one issue, unless the number one issue is also the first appearance. Okay. So, but like Batman number one isn't worth as much as Detective Comics number 27. It's still worth a lot because it was only like a year or two later or like a year later, still worth a lot of money. But first appearances are always uh, worth the most. I'm not actually, I don't know any of the values of these comics. I was just mentioning that because uh, I was just going to tell you the first appearance of the crow actually appeared on the back cover of a comic book called Dead World number 10 in November of 1988. So it's basically an advertisement. So the first appearance was an ad. Yeah, that I, that's just what this says. I, I think what would actually by, by collectors be considered to be his first appearance would be in Caliber Presents number one, which was published by Caliber Press. Caliber Press basically was created by a guy who ran a comic book shop that James O'Barr worked at and did some artwork Aww. for the guy. And for years, a, a James Obar was 32 by this point, by the way. Yeah. She had died when he was yeah. like, and he was so like he, 19. He was in medical school, and he was also doing some work for this guy at this comic book shop and you know, drawing signs and stuff like that. Yeah. And he asked him if you know he'd ever had any interest in doing a comic or a comic strip, and he showed him The Crow, and he was like, I'll publish that. And he creates Caliber Press, basically, to publish. That's cool. Yeah. That's so really cool. That came out in January of 1989. Uh, the, his actual first limited series ran from February to May. It was Crow 1 through 4. Uh, there was four issues uh, with uh, titled Pain, Fear, Irony, and Despair. And then in September of 1990, in Caliber Presents number 15, there was a preview for the Crow number 5 titled Death. But... Caliber went under because, you know, some little indie thing. But right. uh, Tundra Publishing came along, reprinted the first four issues and then also printed uh, Death. And I'm not going to there's been a bunch of publishers of it over the years, but those are the ones that, that really matter. That really got the, the book off the ground and it went on to sell like 80,000 copies, which for an indie comic this is a little black and white comic book. Yeah, it was uh, written, drawn and inked all by. By James O'Barr, basically. He said the reasons for choosing a crow uh, were he, he didn't want to draw too many parallels to Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Poe was like a minor influence on me, and I didn't want people to mistake this for some kind of tribute to Poe. A crow is just a typical carrion bird. It wasn't anything special. He says, I'm sure there must have been a reason for it in the beginning, but I'm not sure why I picked the crow. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I don't, he's like, I don't really know. 
He's like, I don't know, but I also named the main character Draven. Right. Draven. And he quotes, doesn't he quote the Raven? I don't know. I can't remember in the movie. I literally, we just watched it and I already don't know. (laughs) I just kind of had it on. I wasn't really watching it. So uh, this came, this little indie comic book came out and I think the first issue sold like a, a thousand copies or a couple thousand copies or something. I feel like that's a lot of copies. It is, but number one issues are going to sell, period. Yeah. You know, and if, if, if you know, if you have a distributor and you can get, the, you know what I mean? Right. Because people, people are like, up. just in case. Right. But there was already interest from people who worked in Hollywood and turning it into a movie, like almost immediately. Because there was a, one, of, one of these guys uh, that I'll talk about. What year did the movie come out? It didn't. It released in 1994. OK. So pretty fast turnaround. That is pretty fast. You know what I mean? For first appearance to like first five appearance years. and not even on like in a Marvel or DC. Yeah. You know what I mean? First appearance to movie on indie in five years is pretty. Yeah, pretty fast. I mean, how long did it take for Batman? to get? Right. <laughs> like it took him like 30 years. Right. To get a it, fucking that job. was a very known quantity at that point. So James O'Barr's recollection as to how. Uh, this got turned into a movie is that uh, a young producer, her name was Rachel Talele. I've never known how to say her name. I've seen her name on like a lot of New Line Cinema stuff in the 80s. She did like Nightmare <laughs> on Elm Street stuff. Oh. Yeah. And uh, hmm. Rachel Talele. Uh, I'll call her Rachel. Rachel Talele. <laughs> so Rachel T. She heard about the comic, called him out of the blue. He remembered that uh, she made an offer that he didn't like. He says that before he could finally make up his mind about an offer, he got a call from this guy, Jeff Most, and a guy named John Shirley, the same two men who Talele claims introduced her to the project. Uh, her version is a little bit different. She recalls that he, uh, a young wannabe producer, Jeff Most, and a friend of his, novelist John Shirley, approached her with the crow while she was working on Nightmare on Elm Street 4. At the time... Uh, the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise was a big success for New Line, and they were looking for other horror writers and had talked with Shirley about his novels. She thought Rachel thought that the crow was weird and dark and was very unsure about it. So she decided to show it to a colleague, this guy named Mike DeLuca. Uh, He says, I was a production person or no, I'm sorry. She said I was a production person. He was a development person. He was Mr. Young comic book head. So although he's a comic book fan, he he brought other books to the screen, including uh, Spawn, The Mask, Blade. Oh, this guy. Yeah, this Mike DeLuca had a hand in that because he was a comic book guy. So he's like, hey, what about this? So a lot of stuff that he brought to New Line that New Line ended up turning into movies. Not necessarily great. Spawn, not so great. Blade was good. Blade was good. Blade, Blade is good. Blade and Blade 2, very good. Um, And that version of The Mask, though. I, mm. <laughs> like, oh, you mean the Jim Carrey? Yeah, it was so different. For The We're comic book about, was so violent. I'm not talking about Eric. Eric Stolson. No, that was his mask. This is the mask. (laughs) Oh, okay. But at the time, DeLuca's view was that it's so dark and there are a lot of better comic books out there, a lot more commercial comic books out there. And I'll tell you, I I have a copy. I I still have that trade paperback up in the attic somewhere. And it was it was it was way more violent than the movie. Like, I remember he like chops off this guy's feet. No, he would he would like shoot Mm -hmm. up people's drugs and stuff. Shoot up people. He would do it. Yeah. He was, you know, undead. Nothing could. Then why would you do it? So I don't know. But it was, it was very emo. It was very dark and goth and that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, but it was it was a much too. darker book than than the movie even was. The movie's still pretty dark. Yeah, people think that. <laughs> what? What is that face? It is. <laughs> it's dark. It's it's funny because like as an adult, even when you put it on, I was still like, oof. So anyway, New Line ultimately they ended up passing on the crow. Uh, Rachel thought that all along that the crow could never be what their the PG thirteen audience for comic book movies wanted. She admits she was later surprised at the movie's success. But anyway, Jeff Most and John Shirley, they were the ones to basically get this made. Well, when Jeff Most got the first issue of The Crow, less than a thousand copies had been sold. So there there was no public reaction to base any kind of judgment on. Right. But once he read it, he knew he wanted to to turn this into a movie. So with no sense of irony, he admits, we figured this guy is young, he's good, and he's probably cheap. We got a hold of The Crow. I want to make this movie. (laughs) <laughs> so all right jeff most was impressed by the style of the crow by the fact that obar told the stories if he was a film director or sitting with a storyboard and these were storyboards it was reality reality with a fantasy element so most got in touch with obar and spent hours on the phone with him discussing the storyline the more they talked the more he was compelled by it he ended up offering james obar a token one dollar for a two-year option but most says that he optioned the book for so little because I made a good back end deal for James for residuals. I told him I wanted his creative involvement. I pledged that I would not do what everyone else had done in Hollywood, which was to make a PG 13 comic book movie. So like the $1 thing, basically the option is he's going to go shop this around now and try to get them yeah. to turn it into a movie. Right. Financially, Jeff most had little choice because Quote, when I came along, I didn't have any money. I left my job after five years of top 40 videos, and I was setting up a movie called The Specialist and living off of fairly paltry development money. I was staking my career on films. So the deal Obar wanted from most and surely was that he would sell a two-year option and that if the film was made into a movie, he would get a further $50,000 plus other fees down the road if sequels or television series were made, which it did have sequels and a TV series. Really? I didn't know it had a TV series. Yeah. I never saw it. It probably wasn't good. I only saw the first sequel, which was not good either. And then there was yeah. another one where Edward Furlong was the crow. I never saw that one. It was I like know. Edward Furlong and Kirsten Dunst. What? Yeah. What? I only saw the second one, City of Angels, and it was not good. Hmm. So anyway, that's more the the comic book history of the crow. As I think the crow is probably most famous for the fact that Bruce Lee's son, Brandon Lee, was in it. It was a, a his first like big starring role i'd seen him in a movie called rapid fire that they were playing on showtime and he was a martial artist with dolph lundgren i think or no that was showdown in little tokyo i'm getting his movies confused now but he was in another movie called rapid fire as well but showdown in little tokyo i would see on on like showtime and stuff around the time okay i've i don't know who dolph lundgren is i don't think i'll ever know what i feel like We've had this conversation before. Is Ivan Drago from Rocky Four. Oh, I know who Dolph Lundgren is. I must break you. No, no, I know who that he guy. I'm just kidding. I was just kidding. That's so <laughs> okay. funny. Like, he played He-Man in I, Masters of the Universe movie. <laughs> I didn't watch the Masters of the Universe movie. I was busy playing Shiro with my castle in the clouds. So anyway, they they get they get this movie made. They they cast Brandon Lee as Eric Draven, the Crow. Uh, they're filming in March of 1993 in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And so, all right, this is all taken from a book called The Crow, The Story Behind the Film. Did you buy this book? 
Yeah, it was eight bucks on Kindle. You buy so many books for this podcast. <laughs> hey, man, it's an investment. What are you going to do? It? We don't we don't make eight dollars on this episode. <laughs> we actually, it's an investment. We're losing money. <laughs> you, want, you want good information, right? And want uh, all Wikipedia stuff. Uh, <laughs> you do, do I? But do I, though? I think you do. Eh. All right. So anyway, the, cra- the casting crew of the film had assembled a little before 8 p.m. on soundstage number four at Carolco Studios in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, to begin day 50 of principal photography. How many days did they expect I have, does it say? Like, no. Was it like day 50 of 52 days or something? You know, like that's what I'm asking. No, but there was only eight days left oh, so in the schedule. Days. Okay. Yeah. All right. So the major scene they were doing for the, the night was a flashback in which the Crow character... Eric Draven is murdered by a group of hoodlums. So like the scene. Oh, the like almost opening scene. Yeah. Like how he act, how Eric Draven dies is the scene they were filming. Uh, I'm horrified right now. So sometime after 11 p.m., Brandon Lee had arrived on set. He was 28 years old. He arrived at 11 p.m.? Yeah, they were filming at night. Jesus. This was a night shoot. I don't do anything at 11 p.m. I go to bed. <laughs> I'm sleeping. And they were working like 12, 14 hour days and stuff like you do on movies. Yeah. And they're working until the sun comes up, probably. Yeah. The director, Alex Proyas, uh, he took the cast and the crew through two rehearsals of the scene. The atmosphere was friendly, but tense since they were all suffering from a lot of fatigue from working so many hours for two straight months. Right. And nighttime. Right. Which is terrible anyway. So soon the actors moves were set. The lighting was finally adjusted and the camera's focus positions were marked. By midnight, it was time to roll film. The prop master showed Michael Massey, the actor playing Fun Boy. Okay. Do you remember that character? Yeah, he's the one who um, is with Sarah's mom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's worried about his sheets. Yeah. Like, that's like his... Yeah. It's like his line when he dies. Yeah. So the prop master showed Michael Massey, the actor playing Funboy, that he had just loaded the 44 Magnum with which Funboy would shoot Eric Draven with a single full blank charge. This would produce the desired flash of flame from the end of the barrel. So cameras and sound began rolling. The first assistant director, Steve Andrews, yelled action. In the scene, we find Funboy and his partner, T-Bird, played by David Patrick Kelly, in the midst of a violent assault on Shelley Webster, Eric's fiance. The front door opens and Eric enters the loft carrying a bag of groceries. Fun boy spins around, gun in hand, sees Eric and fires. The blank goes off. According to plan, the small explosive in the grocery bag detonates, exploding a milk container and ripping a hole in the bag. Eric grabs his stomach, spins around and sinks to the ground against the doorway. It had all happened almost exactly as it had been rehearsed, except he fell back instead of forward. Which makes sense because of... Right. How a gunshot goes. The action continued briefly with Shelly and the thugs reacting to the shooting, screaming and yelling, while Eric laid there motionless. After enough time to get the reactions, director Alex Proyas shouts cut, and the action stops. It took a few moments for the people on the set to realize that something had gone wrong. It takes several more hours for them to realize that Brandon Lee had filmed his last shot on the crow, and that a terribly tragic event had occurred. Fucking died. Yeah. So I... But how, right? Like, well, that's what I'm going to go into, and this is this is going back to the Wikipedia article that has a lot of information about what exactly the non eight dollar article. (laughs) 
There's a lot of good information in that book. That that I was all like, you should do the crow, and now you're doing the crow, and I'm like, this is a bummer. It is a bummer. This is so a bummer. It's all from in conception. Good news, to... my shit's not a bummer. So, oh, no. well, I mean, it kind of is, but you know. All right. So, in a previous scene, using the same gun, it had called for inert dummy cartridges fitted with bullets, but no powder or primer to be loaded in the revolver. For close-up scenes, which utilize a revolver where the bullets are clearly visible from the front and do not require the gun to actually be fired, dummy cartridges provide a more realistic appearance than blank rounds, which have no bullet. Instead of purchasing commercial dummy cartridges, the film's prop crew, hampered by time constraints, created their own by pulling the bullets from live rounds, dumping the powder charge, then reinserting the bullets. However, they unknowingly left the live percussion primer in place at the rear of the cartridge. At some point during filming, the revolver was apparently discharged with one of these improperly deactivated cartridges in the chamber, setting off the primer with enough force to drive the bullet partway into the barrel where it became stuck, which is a condition known as, as a squib load. The prop crew either failed to notice or failed to recognize the significance of this issue. In, the, in that scene, it called for the revolver to be fired uh, from about 12 to 15 feet away the dummy cartridges were exchanged for blank rounds which feature a live powder charge and primer but no bullet thus allowing the gun to be fired without the risk of an actual projectile but as you know there was something lodged in the barrel you look horrified right now <laughs> like, this is horrible yeah it, it is you know what murder is better than this no because murder is intentional and you're like there's a bad guy there's someone you can hate and there's there's none of that in this. This is tragic and awful. I think, I think they're, you know. What, do you want me to hate the prop guy? No, I'm just saying, I think it's all tragic and bad, even without oh, a, a villain necessarily. Murder. Yeah, well, it, it helps you cope with the bad feelings when there's someone to, like, hate on. Yeah. There's no one to hate on. Everything about this is just tragic. Well, there's always someone to blame. Yeah, the prop guy. And, there's somebody, somebody's incompetence at some point. So anyway. What? That, oh, okay. I hate incompetence. Okay, go on. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, don't I, know. I like, that just riled me up. Because you're right. <laughs> Someone's fucking incompetence. Cost like, a man his life, basically. Oh, ca a, like a promising young man. Like, and not well, that, listen, that matters. Listen. Oh, God. So the production company had sent the firearm specialist home early. So... The responsibility for the guns was given to a prop assistant who was not aware of the rule for checking all firearms before and after any handling. Oh, so I don't know. this might have been maybe this not an individual person, but if the it production was the company, yeah, problem. like they fucked up, which is funny because they're almost always the villain. So right. that makes sense. So therefore, the barrel was not checked for obstructions when it oh. came time to load it with the blank rounds. Since this is so upsetting. Since the bullet from the dummy round was already trapped in the barrel, this caused the 44 Magnum bullet to be fired out of the barrel with virtually the same force as if the gun had been loaded with a live round. Is this how you feel, like, when I'm telling you stories? Yes. Oh, it's terrible. Yes. Why does anyone listen? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeesh. <laughs> right, though, yes. You look, your whole posture, body language right now, you're just, like, Describe contorting it. yourself. Like. You're contorting yourself. It actually reminds me of that scene in Lego Batman where he's just saying no 
and he's throwing <laughs> yeah, himself throw, around the room yeah. and no, saying no, nope. no, 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 <laughs> like that's, no, 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 that's no, you no, right no, no. now. <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's just awful. It's like I'm, I'm literally curling up in like almost a fetal position because it like it's just terrible. Yeah, it's so tragic. So anyway, I think uh, it's the perfect storm of fuck ups to get to this point. Right. Oh, my God. So anyway, uh, it, it this caused the 44 Magnum bullet to be fired out of the barrel with virtually the same force as if the gun had been loaded with a live round, and it struck Lee in the abdomen oh. just below his belly button, mortally wounding him. And then from the book, That's and I'm just kind, of, is. just kind of paraphrasing here, basically, he just he started bleeding to death internally. And when they checked him, they, like, they couldn't figure out what was wrong initially. Like, the people on set, and they have a medic on set, was he he didn't know he had a hole in. No, him? he was out. Like he oh. he. I mean, he collapsed, and they they said they think they saw him, like do the sign for cut, like where you know like a yeah. hand across like, your throat yeah. kind of thing, like as he fell. But like, and then he was like out after that. But again, you know, these are all witness accounts, and you know, right, how, and they're very very right inaccurate. But he was out, so he couldn't communicate. And then Did when he, they he checked never him, revived. Uh, yeah, they they took him to the hospital, but he he was he never yeah never came back but so when they they, they find, cut that scene from the movie though right like the well death. yeah you never see him come home with groceries or anything like that in the no, movie just, remember like, his face so you, it looks like he's like already there and they they filmed all that with chad stahelski who was also keanu reeves stunt guy that was brandon lee's stunt guy at the time um they filmed a lot of that like they redid that whole scene rewrote it and filmed it with him you know that's why you don't see his face yeah. in that scene a lot it's just, you just like, it's, like see his hair, hair and stuff so they read I didn't know what scene it was yeah that was that was the scene oh 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 make me rethink the whole podcast this <laughs> yeah. is terrible by the way Maggie suggested I do the crow this week I was having trouble <laughs> coming up with what I thought like I, I I always have ideas but then when I do my research, a lot of times I'm like, I don't know that this would be interesting to anyone other than me. A lot of times I don't go with the topic I initially wanted to do because I, I want it to be interesting. I want to try to make it interesting. And sadly, this is inherently interesting, especially anybody growing right. up in the 90s. Well, that's why I like when you were like, because one of the topics. OK, let's tell a little bit more backstory. One of the topics that you were considering doing was just in general movie deaths. Yeah. And then we talked about it and it's Sean was like, this is super depressing. I don't want to do it. So then I was showering and I was like, oh, you should do The Crow. Like, that's a good movie. Everybody likes that movie. I've, I've actually wanted to do The, the Crow is, is on my list of movies I wanted to cover. Yeah. Because I, I saw it like seven times in the theater. Yeah. And, you know, reading the comic book and all that kind of stuff. I, I loved it uh, back in the day. So it was definitely on my list. But I also knew. It was not going to be. I knew James O'Barr's backstory, and I knew everybody knows Brandon Lee's. So it's just, it's not fun. There's not 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 any fun to be had with this topic, unfortunately. All right. So anyway, the the bullet oh. hit him below his his belly button. He ended up bleeding to death internally. But there was like just the tiniest little hole where because it wasn't really you know what it I mean. Wasn't it wasn't a full bullet. Yeah. So there's and it wasn't even bleeding. Like they couldn't even tell, and the, plus there was fake blood and all this kind of. Factor, so they didn't even know what to do. But I guess he started bloating like yeah. almost immediately. Well, yeah, he was filling up with blood. Where he where he got hit is is the super supra pubic area. Yeah, the super pubis, I think it's called. 
where Mason had his catheter right. inserted. Yeah. So that would explode your bladder and your intestines like instantly. Yeah. Like they just would. So. And you can't live. I mean, if your bladder expo- explodes, you die. Yeah. Those are toxins just going. All right. He Ugh. was rushed to New Hanover Regional Medical Center in Wilmington, North Carolina, where he underwent six hours of surgery. However, attempts to save him were unsuccessful, and he was pronounced dead at 1.03 p.m. March 31st, 1993, at the age of 28. The shooting was ruled an accident. I mean, which it was. Which now, was that's the other, the other side of this is Michael Massey, the actor. Jesus, did he just, is he dead? Did he drink himself to death? Because I would have. I think he is actually dead. Let me go double check on but I don't think that's why I, I could have sworn he what, what else did I see him in I don't know but I can tell you that that would be he did die he died in, in 2016 yeah again this Wikipedia portrayed the character from Boy and the Crow he was the actor who fired the shot that killed Lee by accident on set in 1993 he was so traumatized by the event that he returned to New York and took a year off from acting he refused to, refused to view the film an interview in 2005, 12 years after the incident, revealed that he still had nightmares about it, going on to say, I don't think you ever get over something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it, on set, he was inconsolable at the time. Right? Right? Like, I get that. Yeah. And they and the people were saying that like, they didn't know how to comfort him. You know what I mean? What, like, what do you... Because, like, you did kill Brandon Lee but right. th- through no intention it is not your fault right but like, yeah I understand uh, that's, that's it's terrible that's, for him it's terrible for for Brandon Lee it's terrible he died of uh, stomach Lee. cancer Bruce Lee's fucking only son right well you know Bruce Lee died at like 28 so oh no I don't know that I don't you didn't know that Bruce Lee what's that Bruce Lee died at 28 as well I'll have to double I don't know check anything on about that Bruce Lee. what's that I don't know anything about Bruce Lee Bruce Lee was 32 when he died. So, but young. He died young, though. He was born in San Francisco. So anyway, that's that's the very sad story of The Crow. But I did want to go into a few other aspects. It's like how they finished filming. So after after he died, they the producers were faced with a decision. Of course, because they invested so much money, millions of dollars, they decided. They were like, you're going to finish this shit. We're going to finish this movie. So he had completed most of his scenes for the film. Brandon Lee had. He was scheduled to shoot for only three more days. Even though there's eight days left in shooting, he only had three more days. Okay. So the rest of the cast and crew, except for Ernie Hudson, whose brother-in-law had just died, stayed in Wilmington. Jesus. So Paramount, which was initially interested in distributing The Crow theatrically. Was like, fuck off, I don't want anything to do with this. uh, They opted out of involvement due to delays in filming and some controversy over the violent content being inappropriate given Lee's death. However, Miramax picked it up with the intention of releasing it in theaters. And they spent uh, $8 million more million to complete the production, bringing his budget up to $23 million, I'm sorry, they spent much. $8 million more million for eight days of shooting? That's a million dollars well, no, a it, day. I don't know that it was at that point. That changed things. It, uh, you know what I mean? They were yeah, scheduled. Yeah, they had to. They had to Right, they had shoot, to rewrite. Yeah. They, had to, like, they had a lot to do at that point uh, because of what had happened. Right. So the cast and crew took a break for script rewrites. Uh, the script was rewritten by Waylon Green, Renee Balser, and Michael S. Chernuchin. They added uh, narration and new scenes. Uh, his stunt doubles, Chad Stahelski, was used as a stand-in, and CGI was used to digitally superimpose Lee's face onto the head of the double. I never noticed that. And I considering never noticed that either. When it, I mean, you can tell some of the matte scenes and effect scenes in the movie. I never noticed that with 
So I don't, I don't know if, if it was just done like in shadows. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it wasn't like a direct on shot because I feel like that would have been really noticeable. Choppy in '94. Yeah. So the beginning of the movie, which had not been finished, was rewritten, and the apartment scene was remade using computer graphics from an earlier scene of Brandon Lee. Huh. So it became a, a sleeper hit at the box office. It opened at number one in the United States at 1,573 theaters, which, again, you know, movies open in like 4,000 theaters now. Right. Uh, uh, with 11, uh, $11.7 million opening, R-rated movie, ultimately grossed uh, $50.7 million, uh, well above its budget, so it was a hit. It was number 24 24th highest grossing film in the, in the U.S. that year and number 10 for R-rated films that had come out that year. The other part I did want to talk about briefly was the soundtrack. The Crow has... This is the first time that you say you're going to cover a soundtrack and then you actually do it. Because you told us you were going to cover Batman, you told us you were going to cover Matrix. Are you, are you disappointed? Do you want me to do no. a soundtracks episode? Do you want me to just go on about music? That we can't play due to right. royalty. I bet that sounds really fun for everyone. But I am going to kind of do that now. But like, you know, that one song. Uh, but anyway, that that's like my favorite movie soundtrack of all time, basically. It's, it's a solid got, soundtrack. I commented on it when we were watching. The Cure... Uh, Jesus, Mary Chain, Rage Against the Machine, Helmet, Pantera. Oh, and Nine Inch Nails. I forgot about them. They cover Joy Division's Dead Souls. Now, Joy Division it was a band, like in uh, a very emo band that, that really influenced James O'Barr. And their singer, I forget, I forget his name, Ian, eventually killed himself. Huh. It was like, a, like like 25 or something, dealing with depression and drugs and stuff like that. So God, your shit. Your shit's a bummer. <laughs> Uh, Rollins band was on there too, uh, and Stone Temple Pilots. But yeah. it, so, but it's it's just a great, it's it's a great soundtrack. That's all I was really gonna say. And it about really it. sums up that that era. It's a really good like, soundtrack for that era. There were soundtracks were a big deal back then. Yeah, you know uh-huh. what I mean. Yeah, yeah, like they I do. They were they were a big deal, and that was the first one I really liked. I liked the Spawn soundtrack kind of. I liked like about like the first four songs on it was as far as it went. I liked this whole soundtrack. I liked every song on yeah. the on the soundtrack. I had the including the bands I had never heard like, of and stuff. Soundtracks used to be a thing. Yeah. Now not so much. Not so much anymore. But it did. It was. It it fit the movie and it, just all really good songs. Like I, I'm trying to think of an um the other one would be like like singles had a really good soundtrack, which was the it came out during the Seattle boom. Yeah, I've never I've never so seen that. So it's got that like Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, like everybody's on that soundtrack. Ooh, Empire Records has a really good soundtrack. Uh, Empire Records has like two good songs on it. It has Dire Straits. <laughs> so like it has like two good songs, I think. That was it called that Romeo, Romeo and Juliet. It's got the Mises has a does a cover song on there. And who else had a song? Did Guar have a song on the soundtrack? Guar did. Yeah. I think that was it for Empire Records. Nope. Yeah, that was Coyote pretty, Shivers. Like I said, there was like those two songs on there. Those were Coyote, really good. There's Coyote Shivers. There's like, Rex Manning. Say no more. More. No more. I can't. I don't. <laughs> I don't. I can't speak English, let alone other languages. <laughs> Just proving my point now. But yeah, that that's that's the crow. They're they're talking about a remake. Kind of going back to why I asked you that question earlier is they, you know, they want to remake, which isn't surprise. They remake everything. But I'm like, if they're going to remake something, remake something that was shitty, but could possibly make some kind of comeback. Like the Langoliers. Yeah. 
or Masters of the Universe. But I don't, I don't probably think you can help like Langoliers with the chain chomps. <laughs> they don't have to be chain chomps. Like <laughs> just the whole concept of things eating time just isn't scary to me. Like when that was when that was finally revealed. Like the movie, the the series was really tense up until then because you didn't know what it was. Yeah. And when then when they revealed what it was, I just laughed. I'm like, okay, this just got dumb as hell. Like yeah, I didn't. They're like, dumb as hell. <laughs> I'm sorry, did you write the movie? Did you yeah. write the short story yes. or book that, it, that it's based My on? My name is Maggie, and then in quotes, Stephen King. <laughs> Maggie, uh, Stephen King, obviously. That's me. <laughs> but it's Stephen with a V. Because, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. Um, what do you have for us this week, Maggie? I'll tell you in a second. I realized we forgot some housekeeping at the beginning. Oh, yeah, we did. So, shirts are... Up at IsleyBrosApparel.com. So I-S-L-E-Y, B-R-O-S. These are some really cool shirts. And of course, you're, of course you would say that, Sean. And partially, but also they're just really cool shirts. They're unique shirts. I I have some ordered. <laughs> yeah, we have like six coming in. Um, we, a, a bunch of our patrons have all patron, Patreon patrons. Yeah, I just call them patrons. Patrons. They've already um, purchased their Patreon patrons did get a discount code and they will like even if you you know join pay- our Patreon in the future you'll get a discount starting code. at $5 you get a discount at $10 you get $15 in credit so we do have by the way thanks to our patrons who have yeah. ordered shirts we really appreciate it you guys are awesome and thanks to our friends who have ordered shirts too because we have sold other shirts not just to thanks to anybody who has ordered shirts. So yeah, we <laughs> it's have always mind blowing. We have two different couple goals shirts up there. We have more coming soon, and then we have a bunch of just fun designs that I've been working on. So um, I do have a coupon code for that at buy two get one twenty five percent off. It's not a huge discount, but you know I, we're not really making any money off of this, <laughs> so that's kind of all I can give. Yeah, we are. Really reinvesting even anything yeah. we've made on Patreon, it you know has gone into creating this store. Literally every dollar that we've made on this, we've reinvested and then spent a bunch of our own. If we get like if, that's if everybody who listened project. gave like a nope, dollar. Nope. See, I actually did the math. If three hundred and fifty people gave us four cents a day, okay. Well, this we is, would be. What do we, what, okay, go on. <laughs> that's not a that's not a denomination on Patreon. What I was going to say was if if people just gave like a dollar a month, we could do way better research. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's yeah. I mean, it's so that's pretty much. Yeah, Sean could buy a whole bunch of eight dollar books. I could get a lot more because because well, he buy book he's buy buys books every time. Eventually, like, well, the goal is is to to do this. I want to do this as a job. Yeah, between this and my, like, designing. Yes. Because I'm also a designer on the side. I work for, I my full-time job is at a company, but I also freelance. But I, I would just love to do this full-time, and then I could do, like, real research and maybe interview people. That would be really cool. That would probably be a spinoff podcast. Yeah. Because what am I going to do, sit with you and interview them as well? No, I mean, I mean, interview them for my topic. Oh. Yeah. Not necessarily You want to be a journalist. No, I want to be a podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> I want to interview people. I want to interview, you know, like Stan Lee, stuff like that. Well, he's 95, so you better get on it. Yeah, I know. Do it, like, <laughs> like in the next month or so. I would, I would recommend getting on that. It would be amazing. So, yeah, but that's our, our coupon code is buy 
two, the number two, get 25, the number 25. So if you buy two shirts, you get a third one for 25% off. Uh, sh shipping is really cheap. It does take a little longer to get to you because we use a printer that doesn't print. Every single shirt that you order is custom printed for you when you order it. So that's why it takes a little bit longer, but then you literally have a custom print t-shirt from us. All right, that was my housekeeping. So this week I have a listener topic. Shout out to Amanda for sending in this topic. Cool. We will be talking about Charles Ludwig Dodgson. Dodgson, yeah. Do you know who that is? No. That's Lewis Carroll. So Lewis Carroll is, or was. The, the Alice in Wonderland guy. Yeah. Did he, he do anything else that he was known for? So many things. Really? He was an English writer. He was a mathematician. No, that he was known for. Um, like what else his his photography he was known for. But he just had that one story. No, he had he had other books. That he was known for? Yeah, Through the Looking Glass. Oh, the sequel to Alice in Wonderland? Yeah. <laughs> this is just the one story then? Anyway. <laughs> I'm not making fun of him. I was just, I want to know if there's other things that I should know about. I, I know him. He I wrote know his a lot name. Of, he wrote a lot of poems, and he really liked literary puzzles. Hmm. Yeah. Like, he wrote a book on literary puzzles and, like, had puzzles in it that you had to solve. Kind of like crossword puzzles, but they were like, it was his own type of literary puzzle that he named like, I don't remember what I didn't uh, take notes on it. That sounds fun. I, it's so smart, I can't do it. Oh. It's like beyond me. Well, if you can't it's do it, I so, definitely can't do it. It's so smart. So, yeah, as you said, his most famous writings are Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. During his early youth... I'm going to actually call him Carol, even though that was his pen name. Yeah. Just because I struggle with his last name. Yeah. Due to not being able to speak. Carol was educated at home. His reading lists were preserved in family archives. And they testify to his intellect. At age of seven, he was reading books like The Pilgrim's Progress. But he also suffered from a stammer or like a stutter. Yeah. Something that was shared by his siblings. And he feels it influenced his life throughout his his social life throughout the years. As a very young child, he suffered a fever that left him deaf in one ear. And at the age of 17, he suffered from a severe attack of whooping cough at 17. I always thought that was a kid's like a baby's. Right. But that was responsible for his, quote, chronically weak chest. I don't know what that means. I have never heard of anybody suffering from a weak chest, but that's that's something that bothered him, apparently. Hmm. His stammer, though, was always a significant part of his image. It is said that he stammered only in adult company and was free and fluent with children. But there's no actual evidence to support this. That's just hearsay. Yeah. And there are children who remember his stammer. So or there were at the time. Carol himself seems to have been very aware of his stammer and he caricature caric caricatured that's the word but himself in um dodo as a dodo yeah in oh, okay. Allison one yeah, oh yeah remember? yeah, yeah. Yep. remember the dodo he modeled the dodo after himself and his inability to express himself huh right 
I don't remember the. Do- I mean, I remember visually the dodo. I don't remember how he spoke though. There's actually no firsthand evidence that this is true, but oh, okay. this is this is what it was. He did refer to himself as a dodo, but they don't. Gotcha. They're assuming it has to do with okay that. So his stammer did bother him, but it was never like so terrible that he stopped applying himself in other areas of his life. Yeah. He lived at a time when people devised their own amusements and singing and reciting were like social skills. Right. You know? Glad I didn't grow up in that era. I can't sing. Right. I would have been so ostracized. (laughs) So he was a pretty engaging entertainer. He would he would sing well and he wasn't afraid to do so in front of an audience. But he was really adept at storytelling and very good at charades. In 1856, so I didn't mention this, but he was born in 1832. He died in 1898. But in 1856, Dean, Dean being a title like ahead of a college dean, yeah. Henry Liddell arrived at the Church of Christ, bringing with him his young family, all of whom eventually became part of Carol's life over the following years. And they would, like, hugely influence his writing career. Hmm. Carol became close friends with Liddell's wife, Lorena, and their children, in particular three sisters, also named Lorena, Edith, and Alice. Hmm. On July 4th, 1862, in a rowing boat traveling on the Iris from Foley Bridge, Oxford, 10-year-old Alice asked Lewis Carroll to entertain her and her sister, Edith, who was eight at the time, and Lorena, who was 13 at the time. As Reverend Robinson Duckworth rowed the boat, Carol regaled the girls with a fantastic story of a girl named Alice and her adventures when she fell into a rabbit hole. The story was not unlike those that he had spun for the sisters before, but this time Alice asked Carol to write the story for her. He promised to do so, but did not get around to it for many months. And when he did write it down, he called it Alice's Adventures Under the Ground. Hmm. In the meantime, he realized, like, I might have something here. So he rewrote it for commercial venture. And he sent it off to one of his friends, George McDonald, who was a writer at the time. And McDonald read the story to his children, who just absolutely loved it. And that made Carol go and seek a publisher. It was published in 1865, and the second book was published in 1871. In 1886, a facsimile of the original manuscript, Alice's Underground, Alice's Adventures Underground, was published. And I really, I haven't read that, and I really want to. So the extent to which Carol's Alice may be or could be identified with Liddell is pretty controversial. The two Alice's are not identical. And though it was long assumed that the fictional Alice was based heavily on Liddell, recent research has really contradicted this assumption. Yeah. He claimed in the later years that Alice was entirely imaginary and not based on any child at all. But there are three direct links to Liddell in the books. He set them all on May 4th, which is Liddell's birthday, <laughs> and on November 4th, which is her half birthday. And that was a lot about little Alice Liddell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
And in Through the Looking Glass, the fictional Alice declares that she is seven and a half exactly, which is the same age that Liddell actually was at this point. There's yeah, also an I, acrostic poem. I feel like it might be based on her a little bit. A little bit. There's an acrostic poem that spells out Liddell's full name. I didn't I didn't take the whole post, but or the whole poem, but the poem is in Through the Looking Glass and it's titled A Boat Beneath the Sunny Sky. And yeah. the first letter of everything fills up is Alice Liddell. Like it spells out her entire name. Holy crap. Yeah. A little weird. Yeah. In 2015, BBC aired a documentary called The Secret World of Lewis Carroll. Like, that's where I get this information. Okay, so let me just say that. So Carroll set up a photography studio in his rooms in Oxford where he was actually like a mathematics lecturer. There, he took self-portraits, portraits portraits of famous artists of the era, and also portraits of children. Mm. The portraits of children dominated his production, and amongst I don't, the I don't most, really like where this is going. The most troublesome pictures. There's troublesome one. Troublesome pictures? I wrote. There's one that's upsetting as fuck. That's that's my note. <laughs> it's an image of a pubescent girl named Lorena Liddell, the 13-year-old. Jesus Christ. In a nude full frontal pose. What? Described in the docu- documentary as an image that, quote, no parent would ever consent to. What? The, the this contra- took a turn? The controversial photograph was found in a this French museum. This makes me question, like, all children's writers at this point. It's found in a French museum with a note in the frame attributing it to Carol. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned, Lorena was the elder sister of Alice. And in the BBC documentary, literature professor Hugh Houghton says Carol's relationship with the Liddell's, Liddell girls was known to have a huge intensity, which would seem pretty strange now. Yeah, there shouldn't be any intensity. Also speaking in the documentary, the acclaimed writer Will Self doesn't mince words. He says, I think Carol was a deeply repressed pedophile, without a doubt. He doesn't sound very repressed. (laughs) It's a problem, isn't it, when somebody writes a great book, but they're not a great person? That's what what he says. My understanding... Can I I sidebar off of that real quick? Yeah. Let's sidebar off of that. Yeah. Speaking of renowned pedophiles. What? <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. That's what I said. Renowned pedophiles like Lewis Carroll and Michael Jackson. That's what Aww. they are. Yeah. I don't want to talk about that. Um, no, I do. That's I, I want to touch on Michael this. Michael Jackson's birthday is almost here. We have okay. to we have to not talk about that. But oh, also, should we title this renowned pedophiles? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Peterinos. Peterinos, take note. <laughs> Yikes. No, but uh, I was just, this is something I looked up the other day. Do you remember, and I'm sorry to sidebar so far off, but you mentioned pedophiles and it made me think of Michael Jackson. We're literally in a different century now. Yeah. But okay. Do you remember in the 80s, Disney had a movie that I think you could only see at Disney called Captain EO? Yeah. That I saw came it. out. I never saw it. I did. But I looked it up the other day because, and I don't remember, but Michael Jackson was accused of a lot of gross stuff. I don't think he was ever convicted, or was no, he? he? No, wasn't. he wasn't convicted, right? But there was although, a lot. Although it was weird that they were able to name the birthmark by his junk. That was what always got me. It was like, well, how else would you know that unless you've seen it? But anyway, anyway on. but Disney, so they retired that at some point. They brought it back in, like, 2010, and then they retired again in, like, 2015. Yeah. So 
Disney doesn't have a problem work, you know, showing the work of of accused pedophile Michael Jackson, but they don't want to work with James Gunn anymore, who made tweets about it. But somebody who's actually accused of it is okay. Someone who made some some bad jokes, poor taste jokes about it is right out. However, that's fucking hypocritical as fuck to me. I just wanted the. So back to your renowned pedophile. (laughs) <laughs> renowned pedophile Lewis Carroll <laughs> take it away <laughs> alright well this story took a turn well this next quote is actually from the great granddaughter of Alice Liddell my understanding is that he was in love with Alice but he was so repressed that he never could have transgressed, transgressed any boundaries she said that the explicit photos Explain the rift that made Carol break contact with the Liddell girls in 1863 when Alice was 11. Photos? I thought he... Oh, he's a photographer. I thought these were paintings. This is a photo? Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah. And you can see some of them, not the more graphic ones, but you can see, like... A lot of the clothed photos are around. He had, like, thousands and thousands of pictures. I don't really need to see the photos. (laughs) Only about a thousand pictures remain. Like they were that were found. Yeah. Wow. But there was, as I was mentioning. So he took a a fully full frontal nude photo of of like a 13 year old girl. 13 year old girl. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. And then they were like. But James Gunn's a bad person. Okay. They were like, that's peculiar. That's <laughs> Is it peculiar? Like, what does that's an interesting relationship you two must have. Like, no, what, what do they call it? An intense? Intense, re- intense bond or something. Oh, God. Huge intensity. That yeah. would seem pretty strange. So. Wow. There, like in 1863, there was a huge like, like they broke contact. Little Adele's broke contact with, with Carol. And. Alice Liddell's great-granddaughter thinks it's because of the photos. Yeah, I would think. But here's the interesting thing. Carol kept a crazy diary, like document. everyone did back then. Yeah. You know, they were like, oh, I ate breakfast and, <laughs> I don't know, Civil War stuff. Like, everyone always <laughs> kept, like, diaries. Didn't get consumption today. <laughs> right. So his diaries from April of 1958 to May of 1962, which it coincides with his friendship with the Liddell girls. Yeah. He's missing from his diaries. Hmm. This is disgusting. So, I just want to, I just want to say that, like, my story was sad and tragic, and this is just fucking disgusting. At least four complete volumes and around seven pages of text are missing from Dodgson's, oh, Carol, 13 diaries. The lost volumes remain unexplained and the pages were removed by an unknown hand. But most scholars assume that the diary was removed by family members in the interest of preserving the family name after his death. There is one page. That's what's important. Yep. There is one page where. Let me see. It's it's known as the cut pages document. And it was compiled by various members of Carol's family after his death. And part of it may have been written by or at the time when everything was destroyed, but it's unclear. It's it's a summary of the missing pages. And the summary for June 27th, 1863. Says that there was gossip circulating about Liddell's family's governess, as well as a relationship with Ina, 
which is presumed to be Alice's older sister, Lorena. Hmm. The break with Liddell family occurred soon after, presumably in response to the gossip or the picture, either way. Yeah. And a lot of people think that the rumored involvement with Eno was actually Alice's mother, who is also named Lorena. But either way, he was having some kind of affair with either a child or an adult who was married to somebody else. And uh, we'll never know the whole story because everybody's fucking dead because it was 1800s. <laughs> like, yeah. So maybe so, like he never got charged with anything. He didn't he didn't do anything. It wasn't illegal. Picture, it wasn't, it illegal. wasn't illegal to take pictures of naked children in the 1800s. What? What the fuck? Yeah. Are you sure? Did you verify I'm that? I'm pretty sure. <laughs> That's got to be. Somebody had to have thought of that. They weren't like pornographic pictures. That doesn't matter. Like they weren't medical pictures either. No, they were art, quote unquote. Bullshit. Yeah, it's. I'll but I did. i that dude's balls off and feed him to him. Dude, I did look about at a bunch of pictures. Well, he had a weak chest, so all you have to do is just kind of push on it. He'll die, apparently. But I I looked at a lot of the photographs he did take. Yeah. And Alice really didn't look anything like Alice. So. Even the drawing of Alice. <laughs> well, no, not, not anything. But it's just like they were all brunettes. Alice is a blonde. But yeah, he seemed to have a unhealthy infatuation with uh, teenage girls. So that's cool, because I've got an Alice in Wonderland tattoo, so. <laughs> that's, that's a bummer. <laughs> thanks for running this for me, Amanda. I appreciate that. What do you do with that information? Like, how do you separate? Like, nobody stopped listening to Michael Jackson. You know oh, no, I, mean? I, I listened to him a week ago. And I just, I don't even know how you, but I mean, but for me, when I think about Bill Cosby, Ugh. it's really I hard. I can't watch Cosby show or anything. Like, not that I was. <laughs> but I was thinking about, like, his special. Like, I used to love Bill Cosby himself. Yeah. And it's still. Go around, idiot. Go around. And it's chocolate. still a really Dad good. great. He yeah. Gives us chocolate cake. It's a really good special, but it's like, could I, I? I haven't, you know, watched it in forever, but it's something that, you know, you, you at one point you could show your kids that comedy. It was a clean comedy special. You You'd know what like, I mean? You could show your kids now and just be like, this dude's a rapist. Yeah, it's just hard to do that. <laughs> it's hard to separate it. Hey, kids, you want to see a rapist on TV? Yeah, listen to this rapist as he tells you not to swear. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't know, man. I mean, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland is already a weird-ass book. Yeah. And Through the Looking Glass is dark. And it was after the break with the Liddell family. Yeah. So it kind of explains why it went to such a weird, dark place. Right. It's, I've never read it's either very, one. I saw the Disney movie. That's as far as it goes. It's very weird. Did you watch the, the new Disney movie? No, the animated. Oh, I thought you were talking about. No, I saw Alice the original Alice in Wonderland Disney. Yeah, me too. I had it on beta. It was my well, I've only seen summer. it because of you. I never oh, saw yeah. it before that. Yeah, I love that movie. Yeah. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. I have a Cheshire cat. So you never knew any of that about him, huh? Uh, No. Amanda felt the need to share that I should look (laughs) into it. So I did. And I was a little skeeved out. But again, nothing can be proven because everybody's dead. So (laughs) you're like, hey, man, he wasn't convicted of anything. Right. I'm like, I'm like a Cosby 
fucking defender. Well, there's the thing too. Like Disney's never going to dissociate themselves with. From they've Alice known about Wonder. this. They, yeah. I guarantee, they've known about this for many, many well, years. Well, Alice or Alice now, Lewis Carroll biographies. Oh, Crowley's freaking out. Lewis Carroll biographies started coming out in the '90s. Like there was like three yeah. in the '90s that came out, and that's when people were like, "Wait a minute." Yeah. He takes pictures of little girls without clothes on. And then people were like, that's not right. And then it kind of went from there. And BBC did this documentary in 2015 when it turned like. hundred, I don't remember, 95, uh, whatever year that was. Two hundred and twenty. Wow. <laughs> like, I don't I don't know. But it was it was to commemorate some kind of anniversary. Yeah. And 150. 150 year anniversary, I think. And they did it to commemorate mm. that. And then they were like, but also such a good book. A little bit of a pedo. <laughs> pedo. Pedo bear. <laughs> pedo bear. Like, it's so gross. You hear Crowley? We've been we've been at it for like over an hour. So Crowley's getting anxious. Well, okay. That's boy. that's all I had for this week was the crow. Is that the the end of your pedo tale? Yeah, it's the end of my tale of Alice's adventures in Wonderland and possible... And renowned pedophile Lewis Carroll. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, also in t-shirt news, I'm working on a Crowley t-shirt. So, that's pretty exciting. That is that is exciting. That's my, That was my idea. I that have no Sean's artistic idea. talent or capability whatsoever, so I came to Maggie and said I, wanna, I want some kind of caricaturized Crowley Manson on a shirt. So I reached out to the artist who drew our cover art, and she's working on a Crowley drawing with full commercial use, so that way I can throw it on out on some t-shirts. Because who doesn't love Crowley? Or posters. You guys want posters? I kind of want a poster <laughs> of Crowley. I'm just going to put it up in my living room. Everybody who's met Crowley has no idea why we like this dog. <laughs> Crowley is Crowley's an asshole. Like, he will bite you. Right. He's a biter. But, man, he's the best when it's just us. He's laying here on his back. With his, he's just such a good boy. Are you such a good boy? All right. Let's wrap it up. All right. <laughs> We're just we have to go Crowley. pet our dog. So <laughs> Thanks for listening, guys. Look at Sam. Rate, review, subscribe. I love my dogs. Rate, review, subscribe. Go to IsleyBrosApparel.com. Use our coupon code. And like I said, all shirts are custom printed, so they take a little bit and longer. If you have any ideas, like if you want a shirt that says renowned pedophiles is that a shirt we could make would anybody want that <laughs> renowned pedophile <laughs> i don't think so i don't think anyone wants <laughs> imagine someone wearing that and then wearing it to promote our show just leave our logo off of it <laughs> like, right if somebody's daring enough to wear a shirt that says renowned pedophile i'll put my favorite murders logo on it <laughs> <laughs> there you go <laughs> all right thanks guys bye bye